0: Good to see you today. Today, I understand, is going to be a little bit warmer than the, the last couple of days, uh, but have no fear, winter is still here. It looks like we might get a little bit of uh, wintry precipitation later this week, um, but we are inch, itching, inching closer to spring, um, and uh, frankly, as much as I love snow, I'm looking forward to that uh, for things to warm up and uh, to be able to get out and about a little bit more than what we've been able to do this winter, so i uh, so glad that you're here to worship with us this morning, uh, love that um, uh, second song that we sang there that kind of compared Jesus to, to, to Moses and other Old Testament characters, that he's the true and better. Um, and uh, that's kind of what we're discovering as we're going through the book of John. Uh, because repeatedly, John is pointing to Jesus as the Son of God, as the Christ, and, um, and our need to believe in him. And so this morning, we're continuing our journey in the Gospel of John. We're gonna be looking at the remainder of chapter three. And um, this is a little bit of a risky way to begin uh, the sermon, uh, but I wanna ask you a series of questions. What if one Sunday morning, you got word that your favorite preacher is going to be here in Canal Winchester, speaking at another church. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, some of you are thinking, but, but we already have a favorite preacher, and he's here. Um, but let's just suppose for a moment there was somebody else, okay? Um, I don't know who it might be, you know, John Piper, Alistair Begg, uh, David Jeremiah, you know, Francis Chan, you, you name it, whoever it is that you like to listen to. Think about it for, for a moment, would you go? Good question. What, what, what if your favorite preacher, other than me, decided to plan a church here in Canal Winchester? Would you leave? And those of you who wouldn't, would you be afraid that others might? See this isn't a scenario we have really thought about and you can see why it's a little risky going there here this morning but this is exactly the concern that John the Baptist's disciples had in John chapter 3 at the end of the chapter now now i want you to try to imagine for a moment you're living in the 1st century you're living at the time of Jesus and your pastor happens to be John the Baptist Okay, Now, you know, John has got a successful ministry. People are coming out of the woodwork to see him. He's baptizing people left and right, and suddenly Jesus shows up. Now, John's a good preacher, right? I mean, he's got a good following, but Jesus, well, Jesus is Jesus. I mean, how do you compare to that? And yet, John is not alarmed. John is not concerned. John is not worried. And you want to ask the question, well, why and how? Well, that's what we're going to get to here this morning. See, John understands that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And he alone can give Eternal life you might say that that John is saying here in this passage we 're going to be looking at is that Jesus is god 's Son, and he is our only hope for salvation let 's pray, Father, I thank you for this morning. thank you for our opportunity to look to your word, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would just uh, illuminate our hearts and our understanding as we look at this passage. And I pray that you would uh, challenge us in our thinking and that you would change us and conform us to the image of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want us to kind of look at the passage um, by first looking at uh, the setting of our story here this morning. And uh, uh, we're going to start reading in verse 22 of chapter three. So if you can go there, and my clicker's not advancing at the moment, but John chapter 2, uh, excuse me, chapter three, verse 22. After this, and Jesus and His disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Uh, throughout John's gospel, you'll notice that he makes um, a habit of identifying uh, events and conversations and people. Um, he, he's being very precise, and he, he mentions um, specific individuals at times, verses 22 through 26, actually recalls a time where Jesus and John's ministry overlapped with each other. Uh, we see the the site um, uh, in on near Salim. Today, we don't know exactly where it is, but it was likely uh, located about halfway between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. And, and I, oh, you got the map up already. So you can kind of see um, where the Sea of Galilee is. Down here's the Dead Sea. So up in this region here is where John was baptizing. And Jesus, you know, was also involved in the Judean wilderness baptizing. Now, of course, when you look at a map like that, you have no idea of how far or how close things are, but uh, it was relatively close proximity. And it's interesting that uh, Enon literally means um, place of the spring or... um, Stream. And so this is where John is baptizing. There's plenty of water here. And the baptism that we read about in chapter, excuse me, in verse two, is not what we know as baptism. It's not Christian baptism, but it's actually a continuation of John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance, signifying um, purification from sin. And you know, we think, well, why would Jesus be doing that? Well, it's because the gospel is not complete without repentance. You know, it's, it's, it's not just believe, it's repent and believe. And we see that really clear in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, after John was arrested, it says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying, ready? He's proclaiming the gospel of God, and he's saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And what's he say? Repent and believe in the gospel. So those two things go hand in hand. And so um, it's, it's just not a matter of people coming to Jesus and believing in him. It's turning from their sins and trusting in him. Now, we know from chapter 4, verse 2, if you were to look ahead, that Jesus himself is not baptizing. So, then we have to understand what is meant here uh, in verse uh, 22 is that Jesus was actually overseeing his disciples who were doing the baptism because Jesus himself was not doing it. Now, this sets the stage for potential conflict between John and Jesus. And so, let's take a look at John's testimony beginning in verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So, what you see here is, is that there was a discussion that came about as a result of a certain Jew. Some translations say uh, certain Jews who came to John the Baptist's disciple and they had a question about purification. Now, we're not told exactly what that was, but it seems to be related to John's baptism and the Jewish, Jewish ceremonial washings that are laid out in Scripture, specifically in the book of Leviticus. Now, the word discussion really doesn't do this justice. It's kind of an understatement because the the Greek word that's used here, translated discussion in the ESV, literally means disagreement or argument or contention. So you might say they had a little debate about this. And somehow this argument, this dispute, this debate ended up, getting translated into thinking about Jesus and what he was doing with his disciples when it came to baptize him. They they became worried about Jesus and his disciples who were baptizing in the region. And if you look at verse uh, 26 you can clearly see that they were concerned that those who had been following John were now leaving John and his ministry to follow Jesus in his ministry. Now, this is despite everything that John's already said about Jesus. And he's said a lot. We read about it in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And these men who have stayed with John have given up everything to follow him. So you have to understand where they're coming from. They loved and respected him. They sacrificed so much to follow. They gave up uh, their, their, uh, the comforts of home. They gave up their time and their energy to follow John. John. I mean, we know what John looked like, remember? He dressed in camel skin and hair, he ate locusts. I mean, this was not a pleasure cruise. This was not, you know, staying at the Hilton. I mean, they're out in the wilderness. This is this is rough. And now there's this new guy in town who was stealing John's thunder and his sheep. I mean, just last week, or a couple weeks ago, we learned about Andrew and John, two of John's disciples. And when John said, Behold the Lamb of God, they left him and followed Jesus. And they weren't the only ones. John was bleeding disciples to Jesus. And so they were concerned. And to some degree, rightfully so, Perhaps they also saw their own influence waning, right? They were John's disciples. They were his right-hand men. And if John's ministry is in decline or apparent decline, then their influence would be in decline as well. And so these men viewed Jesus as a competitor, so they tried to drive a wedge between John and Jesus by bringing this up to John's attention. Hey, John, this guy that you were talking about, that you spoke so highly of, he's taking all your, your sheep. He, he, he's siphoning off your, your disciples. We, we need to do something about that. You need to do something about that. They failed to understand what John had been saying. They failed to understand who Jesus truly was and what John's ministry was all about. And I think as I was looking at this, I, I, I think there's a certain reality that's a little scary, and that is that sometimes the greatest obstacle to kingdom work is not Satan and his demons, but its well-meaning, overzealous Christians, disciples, disciples. People who don't have full understanding. I mean, consider what was happening in the Corinthian church. You know, Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, comes back to it in chapter 3. Listen to what he says. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says i follow paul another says i follow apollos and another i follow cephas still another i follow christ is christ divided was paul crucified for you were you baptized in the name of paul And then over to chapter 3, he says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, But God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building." John uses the concern of his disciples to once again testify to who Jesus is and his role in life. And John refutes their wrong-headed thinking there in verses 27 through 30, and he does so by giving us three powerful statements um, and an illustration. The first statement that he makes there is that a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. In other words, what John is saying is, fellas, I'm I'm not here doing my own thing. I've been given a task. I've been given a gift. I have been given a charge. I am simply being faithful to fulfill that. I am just being faithful to my calling. I mentioned this kind of, I, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, that church leaders sometimes can be very territorial. And it's easy to understand why. When you look around and you see other churches that seem to be growing, at least numerically, You see people getting saved. You see people being baptized. When you look around and you see them involved in the community, serving, ministering, evangelizing. When you see them adding staff, building new buildings, you can begin to wonder what am I doing wrong? What are they doing right? Why is God seemingly blessing them and not blessing us? And, and then suddenly you find yourself becoming very protective of your flock and your congregation and not for the right reasons. It's easy to get protective when you look out there and you see all of that and then you begin to see, wow, we're, we're, we're bleeding people to these churches. Well, we need to remember something. We're not building our kingdom. We're helping to build God's kingdom. And we need to remember, as John understood here, that all blessings, including the blessing of fruitful ministry, comes from the Lord. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Now, having said all of that, let me let you in on a little secret. Too many churches see other churches as their enemy, as their competitors, if you would. And one of the proofs of that is, I can ask you the question, how often do you see churches, I'm talking about Bible-believing churches, how often do you see those churches Partnering with other churches for the cause of the gospel. It's rare. You don't, you don't see that a lot. Churches are often isolated outposts of the kingdom of God. And they never really interact with each other. They don't pray for each other. They don't find ways to serve. And and yet, what is so amazing um, is that oftentimes it's, you know, the world looks at us and and that's one of the reasons why they don't like us (laughs) because, you know, they see us at each other's throats, so to speak, or we're just so different. Our our ministries, our churches are so siloed that, that it appears that we're divided. And so... I think personally, one of the greatest testimonies that we can give to an unbelieving world is to see churches link arms together, to serve Christ together. Um, that doesn't mean we become all one big happy family, one church, but I, I think it can be done. I, I've been involved in churches like that. And, and I know that as I, as I share that, I, I don't want to be completely negative here. You know, I, I love my church, I love New Life. But I think we can do a better job with this. I've been encouraged, however, of late especially, because of the elders of this church and our involvement with another church here in town where we're able to meet together and pray together and honor God together. That's a great start. But we're building God's kingdom and I, I think, if, if we're honest, if we're really honest, and the reason why I think sometimes we view other churches, you know, as, as, as competitors is because we're fearful. We're fearful that if we get together with another church, maybe the people from our church might like that preacher better, might like their music better, might like their programs better. And if they do, what happens to us? Then our people shift, and they go to where they feel the grass is greener. And the truth is, we need bodies and we need bucks to validate our existence. I'm I'm just—I'm just being honest. You know, we're human. And we have to fight against the flesh. We have to fight against these these things that would creep in, these temptations. I I don't think it was a, a, a coincidence that John's disciples went to John the way that they did. I think that's a ploy of the enemy to try to divide us, to try to get us to see fellow Christians, fellow preachers of the gospel as our competitors when really they're our companions, Listen, we've got an enemy, and it's not the church down the street. Other Bible-believing churches, and I stress the word Bible-believing, because there are a whole lot of churches out there that we are not going to be linking arms with because we do not share a common faith and a common belief. But there are churches that our Bible-believing, God-honoring, Christ-exalting churches that we can partner with. God has but one church. There's one God, there's one kingdom, and there's one mission, and God has called us together to be on that mission with him. Those who labor in the Lord labor in his field with his power and with his gifts. Now, let me give you a word of warning having said all of that. All that glitters isn't golden. I think you know what I mean by that. Bigger isn't necessarily better. We can be lured by that which is shiny. That looks so good, so big, so beautiful, so wonderful. And fail to see what God is doing right in our midst. I mean, when Jesus came to earth, you know, he didn't start in an evangelistic campaign speaking in, you know, stadiums or coliseums all across the Roman world. He called 12 men together and he gave three years of his life to them, and it turned the world upside down. Despise not the day of small beginnings. Second statement that John makes here that's really important. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him to prepare his way. John understands who he is and what his role and purpose is. In life, you go back to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me. In Mark chapter 1, verse 2, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And then in Luke chapter 1, and he will go before him in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John understood his role. He understood who he was. And Jesus, and Jesus alone is God's son. And he alone gives salvation. Now I want you to notice something in this passage. John describes his relationship with Jesus with an analogy from a wedding. Who is the man of the hour at a wedding? It's the groom, isn't it? At least it ought to be. It ought to be. After all, it's his wedding. And John is stating here, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm a groomsman. I'm just standing up for him. I'm not the best man. He's the best man, at least in this venue. This occasion is not about me. It's about him. It's his time. It's not my time. It's his time. And the scripture says that John rejoiced greatly at hearing his voice. Um, the truth is, John has been rejoicing ever since he was in his mother's womb. Remember? You go back, Luke chapter 1, verse 44, and the baby just leapt in the womb with joy being in the presence of Jesus. No wonder, no wonder the scripture says, therefore this joy of mine is now complete. John has been waiting his whole life for this moment. And and not just that that Jesus, you know, the light of the world has come. John rejoices not just because the Savior of the world is now here. John rejoices because his Savior's here. John, too, was a sinner in need of a Savior. And he's getting to witness Jesus come on the scene, knowing that this is the one, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, who will take my sin away so that I can have a relationship with the Father. No wonder his joy was complete. Now, John makes one other amazing statement here in verse thirty. He says, "He must increase, but I must decrease." Some translations say that um, that he must become greater, and I must become less. Um, obviously not less and less in value and worth and dignity and all of that. I think a better translation might be that he must become of greater importance and I must become of less importance. And once again, we see the humility of John B., don't we? I mean, this is incredible. He not only understands his role, he understands that it's time for him to step back And allow Jesus to take the spotlight. To step into the shadows and allow Jesus to be preeminent. Jesus is God's son. And our only hope of salvation. Before I read um, the rest of the chapter, I need to preface it by saying that once again... We're not sure who's speaking here. Is it John the Apostle? Is it John the Baptist? Uh, remember, there are no quotation marks in early Greek manuscripts, so um, uh, it's sometimes hard to tell. But um, it, like I said last week, it really makes no difference because God saw fit to have it recorded, and it is regarded as holy scripture. But let's look at the commentary uh, that is given starting in verse 31 Now, in this section, we learn several more things about Jesus. First thing we learn is Jesus isn't from these parts, right? It says he came from heaven. He was born in Bethlehem, but that wasn't where he came from. He came from heaven, and he is above all, meaning he is supreme, And Jesus has revealed the Father to us in his will for our lives. Scripture says he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. This is not secondhand information. This is firsthand eyewitness testimony. Jesus is revealing to us that which he has seen and heard. And the Father sent the Son, which tells you a lot about the Father. And his love for his creation. And the Son utters the words of God. We also learn that Jesus gives the Spirit without measure to those who believe, and that the Father loves the Son. And has given all things into his hands. If you look at verse 36, it sounds very much like verses 16 through 18 that we covered last week. You see, each person has to decide what they will do with Jesus. You will either receive him into your life or you will reject him. There is no middle ground. There is no third option here. Notice the contrast in verse 35. It's not between belief and unbelief. It's between belief and disobedience. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, biblical faith or biblical belief um, marries these two things together. It's, It's belief and it's obedience. You can't separate belief from obedience. You can't believe in Jesus and not obey him. One can't be a Christian and, and, and not obey Christ. It's nonsensical. Belief and obedience go hand in hand. Here are just a sampling of verses that point to this. Hebrews 5, 9. He, Jesus, that is, became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe, no, obey him. Romans 16, 25, Paul says, referring to Jesus and his ministry and proclaiming the gospel is to bring about the obedience of the faith. And Peter tells us in chapter 4, verse 17, for it is time For judgment to begin at the household of God? And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So let me ask you as I get ready to close Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you repented of your sin? and received Christ into your life as Lord and Savior. He, he, he comes, as, it's a It's a package deal. You, you can't accept him as your Savior, get your sins covered, and yet not seek to obey him. Now, no, keep in mind, we don't do it perfectly. We're not talking about, you know, works, but we're talking about love That prompts obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And his commandments, he says, are not burdensome. Jesus is God's son. He's our only hope of salvation. Now, if you belong to Christ, do your friends and neighbors and coworkers know it? I mean, do they know that you belong to Christ? John rejoiced to hear the bridegroom's voice. Do you? Do you hear his voice? Do you rejoice over it? He says his joy was complete. Is yours? Like John, we have every reason to rejoice because the Son of God has come. And he has died on the cross and he rose from the dead so that we could be made new. But it gets even better because one day he's coming back and he's coming back for his bride. And we are the bride of Christ. Jesus is coming back for us. We have every reason to rejoice. And Another question I would ask is, if if you know Jesus, is he increasing in your life? Are you decreasing? Is he gaining greater importance, a greater role in your life, or are you sitting on the throne of your life still? We, We need to take John's words to heart. He must increase, we must decrease. My hope is that we will obey the son and that we will do all that we can to point other people to Jesus because that's what John's ministry was all about. He is a role model for us. He is an example for us to follow. He willingly stepped back and says, Jesus, this is your time. And I think us as as believers or even non-Christians at this point, we need to have that same attitude. Jesus, this is your time. I'm yours, take me, use me for your glory. One other practical application I'd like to leave you with is pray for God's word to go forth in power from every Bible-believing church all over the world. And let's start with those churches that are in our immediate area, in Canal Winchester, in Pickerington, in Lithopolis, and Groveport, and Lancaster, as you know them, Pray that that would happen. Pray that they would build God's kingdom and not their own. Pray that for us. Pray also for unity among God's people and amongst Bible-believing churches. And in your individual conversations with fellow companions, be humble, be respectful, and tolerant with those whom you disagree Love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and work hard to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's what God's calling us to do. May he be supreme in our lives and in this church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together here this morning and for your word to us and for the example of John the Baptist and uh, such great humility. Lord, we want to know, we want to be as sure of who we are in you as John was of himself. We want to not only know our purpose in life, but Lord, we want to bring all our energies to bear that we would fulfill that purpose, that we would be faithful in our walk with you, that we would point others to you at every opportunity that we have. And Lord, we know that to to do that, we need you to do a deep work in our heart to transform our thoughts, our words, our actions. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would increase and that we would decrease. Amen.